Hey friends, and welcome to You Deserve to Love Your Job with me, Arlene Pace Green. My goal is to help you identify and achieve your greatest aspirations and have a lot of fun along the way. I'm so glad you've joined me on this journey. Let's go. I am so excited to let you know that the You Deserve to Love Your Job book is available. It's in paperback and Kindle. I wrote the book for anyone who is looking for more purpose, more meaning, and more joy in your work and life. Filled with examples, quizzes, and experiences from real people, including me, and the book lays out a roadmap to help you clarify your purpose and create an action plan to achieve it. Go get it. It's available on Amazon. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Today's topic is overcoming fear. As I'd mentioned for this season, we're sharing episodes that link to the different chapters in my book, You Deserve to Love Your Job. So if you're following along, this topic is linked to chapter nine, where I share strategies that have worked for me personally in overcoming fear, including how I managed the fear that I felt when moving from a corporate role to business ownership, because that fear was real. And today I am super excited because you're going to get to hear a conversation I had with Dr. David Craig, who has some excellent insights on this topic. Dr. Craig completed his PhD in clinical psychology at The Ohio State University in 2021. His research is focused on promoting flourishing and well-being using concepts drawn from positive psychology, such as gratitude, forgiveness, spirituality, and kindness. His research on gratitude and kindness has been covered by major media outlets, such as the Times of London, NBC's The Today Show, and Forbes. He currently works as a clinical psychologist for the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs in San Antonio, Texas, where he serves veterans diagnosed with psychosis and substance use disorders. This is an amazing conversation. Dr. Craig is a delightful human being, and he just provides practical strategies that we can all use to manage fear and anxiety. So thanks so much for joining and enjoy. David, thank you so much for joining today's episode. We're going to explore a topic that I think is so prevalent in life and one that all of us at some point have to figure out how to deal with or how to overcome. So, you know, for the audience, I'm thrilled we have you here to discuss this. Uh, So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Arlene. It is a real pleasure to be here with you uh, talking about this important topic. I also just want to thank you for the work that you do at the Veterans Administration. I I come from a military family, so my That's husband right, yeah. was in the Navy, my dad was in the Army, my sister was in the Army. I mean, I just have a ton of friends, cousins, nephews um, that have served in the military. And I grew up in a military town, so lots of my friends were from military families as well. So I just yeah. appreciate the work of the military and the work that you all do in serving the military and the military community. Um, so I thank you so much for the service and the work that you do. Oh, thank you. It's a it's a honor to hear that you've got that connection. And you know, I love what I do. I love working with veterans. So it's uh, it's a fun and rewarding job. So I appreciate that. I can believe that. I can believe that. And so, and I was thinking, I'm looking forward to this conversation for so many reasons. One, because fear shows up in so many different contexts. So I was thinking about, you know, the work that you do and just our military and how fear can show up in literal life or death circumstances. And at the same time, it can show up, you know, if I'm going into a presentation at work, I've never done before, right. like it can show up there too. So I think it's just, it's interesting how often it can show up and in so many different contexts that we have to deal with fear in life. So I thought we might start by just 
like, how would you define fear? What is fear? Like, how do you think about that as a topic? Sure. Yeah. And and as you mentioned, this actually does come up quite a bit with my veterans, particularly my combat veterans with PTSD. But what I usually tell them is fear is an emotion that's based on the perception that a threat is present. Um, so let me break that down a little bit because it's it's actually more complicated than uh, than someone might think on on first kind of impression of hearing that. So, you know, first of all, fear is an emotion. And as it turns out, defining what an emotion is, is actually really difficult. It's a lot of philosophers and psychologists and neuroscientists who debate exactly what an emotion is. But just to keep things simple, emotions, generally speaking, are these kind of like bodily experiences that we experience in our bodies that we can typically label with one word. So things like mm -hmm. afraid, sad, happy, angry. So with fear, it's often associated with something we call the fight or flight response, right? So increased heart rate, blood flowing to our extremities, et cetera. So that's kind of the bodily experience of fear. So that's the first part of it. Fear is an emotion, but then it's it's a an emotion that's based on a perception of threat. And I always emphasize that word perception because our perceptions may or may not be accurate. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're very misleading. And that threat, as you mentioned, or that perception of threat can be something very literal, like a combat situation, walking down a dark alley at nighttime by yourself, um, you know, very real physical threats, or it can be something more abstract, like fear of talking in front of other people, fear of going into a job interview where the the threat is more to your career, your resources, et cetera, rather than to your to your actual life. But overall, it's an emotion based on the perception that a threat is present. Hmm. Yeah, I could see the part about perception. Um, yeah. And that perception could, I guess, be based in reality per se. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, reality per se, or it could be something that I've conjured up a little bit in my mind, I guess. Is that yeah, fair? To say? <laughs> I think that's fair. And I think that's an important distinction. Um, and in fact, when we're working with folks that maybe have fear that is working against them in, in some mm -hmm. ways, maybe kind of an unproductive fear, probably talk about this more later, I'm sure. But one of the things we'll do with folks is help them to develop more accurate interpretations or perceptions mm -hmm. of fear, right? Because mm -hmm. there's good there's good fear and healthy fear. And then there's fear that, that works against us when it's based on a maybe kind of a, a skewed perception of the world, which is going to be based on our previous life experiences, right? So if we've gone through combat, we're wired to see threats in our environment. And then when we come back home, uh, we might have our alarm bells ringing maybe sometimes when when they shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And, and even the idea that it's an emotion that I'd never thought about emotions can be described with one word, mm -hmm. like afraid happy, uh, you know, excited. And I know, you know, some of the work I do is in emotional intelligence and just being aware of our emotions. Um, do you find, David, that most people are aware of fear when it's operating or is it, is it possible fear is operating and we're not really aware of it? So if you know what I'm saying, like sometimes with emotional yeah. intelligence, like one of the first steps is, can you name the emotion that you're feeling right now? And I think about yeah. fear, like, I wonder, is it, always present like in our mind like we know I'm in a fear state or does it sometimes operate in the background if that makes sense yeah that's a that's a great question um so I would say oftentimes people are aware of feeling good or bad but they're mm -hmm. not necessarily aware of the specific emotion they're feeling whether it's you know fear versus anger versus sadness right they just kind of say like I'm not feeling good I'm feeling bad or I'm feeling good and happy right um, in fact, there's a condition in psychology called alexithymia, which is just fancy jargon for folks that don't really have the ability or the vocabulary to label their emotions. And it can make it really difficult to 
function in life when they don't understand their emotional experiences. So yeah, uh, essentially, I think that's true that sometimes people might feel bad and they might feel afraid, but they don't have necessarily the vocabulary to label it as, hey, this is fear. And right. so actually, that's one of the things I'll do with my clients is have them label their specific emotions with one word so they can start to get a little more insight into it and how it's mm-hmm. affecting them. Okay. Okay. I love that. Yeah. Labeling. I've been trying to do more of that just for myself, just to get sure. more aware of what's operating in the background for myself. So right. thanks for the personal help. As well. Of course. Yeah. As yeah. Well. Um, so, you know, you mentioned that fear can be helpful in some ways. Um, in what ways is fear like helpful? Is it a benefit to us? Yeah. And and again, this is a really important point because I think sometimes we think of fear as a bad thing or these negative emotions is like, yeah, we just need to get rid of them. And fear is, there's a reason we have it. And, uh, the main benefit I'm aware of is that it, it really sharpens our senses and makes us more kind of attuned to our environment and, and prepares us for, for threats. Mm. Um, so, you know, again, thinking of my combat veterans, right? Fear has probably saved many of their lives in actual combat situations or talking about the job interview, right? A certain level of fear or anxiety might actually be good because it kind of encourages you to prepare for that situation so that nothing catches you off guard. Fear also helps us to kind of curb our certain, you know, you know, impulses towards destructive behavior, right? So, you know, if I'm an adolescent, I'm thinking like, hey, wouldn't it be fun to ride on top of the roof of my car? Fear might go, hey, that's not such a good idea. That's re- that's really dangerous. Uh, right. In fact, there, there's a famous study where they looked at people scoring high in psychopathy, and they found that when people have these psychopathic tendencies, they do better if they have a high level of anxiety or fear because it kind of is a safeguard mm-hmm. against kind of living out their impulses. So, um, yeah, overall, fear within a certain range can be a healthy thing. I know you have a background in industrial psychology. You're probably familiar with the Yerkes-Dodson law that basically um, a moderate level of excitement or fear or what have you uh, can actually improve your concentration and performance, but it starts to diminish your performance at really extreme levels. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Long story short, fear can be a, a healthy and good thing in, in certain contexts. Mm-hmm. I could see that. I mean, and when you said, when you were saying how it can moderate your behaviors in a good way, I, mm-hmm. I, think, I know my mom used to always say, um, your children keep you safe. Uh, yeah. It's almost like this fear of you know, like you don't want to do anything to yourself as a parent because you're like, I now have a child. So it kind of moderates you like, yeah, maybe before I would have jumped off of something crazy or something. Right, right. But it's like now I'm thinking, wait, I, I have a child to take care of. It kind of, you know, it can moderate the choices you make. Yes. Sometimes in a good way, um, yes. sometimes in a bad way, but sometimes in a good way in terms of just, yeah, I could see how that fear, healthy fear could kind of keep you safe in a lot of yeah, ways. It keeps uh, keeps you in check. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, yeah, exactly. So how do you know when it becomes unproductive? Like, how do you know when fear is now maybe outside of that healthy range? Like you're talking about the sure. you know the curve outside that healthy range and it's kind of getting in our way. Sure. Yeah. 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 So um, again, I'll kind of relate this to my experience working with veterans, because this is also a question I get a lot of like, well, you know, why should I? give up fear. Because again, in many cases, fear has saved some of my veterans' lives. They might be reluctant to give it up. So what I tell my veterans is that we're not trying to get rid of fear, but fear starts to become unproductive or unhealthy when it's one based on a faulty perception of a threat. In other words, like a false alarm. So uh, believing there's a threat present when there really isn't. Um, So for example, um, if I'm so afraid of something bad happening to me that I'm unable to go outside my house and just check my mail, then fear starts to get in the way of us living out a full life. Um, you know, unless you live in a 
really dangerous area, it's unlikely that just going outside to check your mail is going to really pose any threat to you. But sometimes, maybe based on our past experiences, that false fear kind of leads us to avoid doing these kind of normal daily activities. Mm -hmm. The other time it can start to get unproductive is when it's based on an exaggerated perception of threat. So in other words, there might be some possibility of a threat there, but the odds or statistics of something bad happening are improbable, but we're, we're, we're acting as if it's if something bad is, is imminent. So for example, um, you know, I used to work with folks with like phobias of like flying or, or heights where they couldn't even walk up a, a parking garage. Um, or again, with some of the veterans with PTSD, something like going to a movie theater can mm -hmm. be really um, difficult. And so what I, what I helped them realize is that, yes, it's, it's possible there's dangers in those situations. Obviously, we've seen plane crashes before in the news. But if you look at the rate at which it happens, it's actually one of the safest industries, the airline industry, as well as going to movie theater, right? Yes, we've, we've seen there's sadly shootings in movie theaters. But again, statistically, it's, it's relatively rare. And we probably do other things on a daily basis that are much more risky that we don't even think twice about, like driving, for example. You're much more likely to get injured or die driving to work than you are flying on a plane or going to a movie theater or even even going skydiving, right? Jumping out of an airplane is probably safer than driving. Um, really? Yeah, I, well, I, don't quote me that. I have to look that up. But but my right. guess is yes. I mean, with I got all it. the yeah. safeguards in place compared yeah. to, especially, I know you're in Texas too, the way people drive here in Texas, right? <laughs> um, I think I'd take my odds more with the, the skydiving. Um, yeah. And so that's when it, you know, again, fear starts to be self-defeating when, when mm -hmm. it's based on that kind of exaggerated perception of threat and it prevents us from living out our values and our full lives to our full potential. Mm -hmm. I could see that. Yeah. And, you know, it reminds me of something that a friend of mine used to say about fear. And I guess this only, this only really is um, accurate if you have the false perception, but I don't know if you've heard this, that fear is false evidence appearing real. Like, yes. Is that a con? Okay. So yeah, I yeah. actually tell my veterans that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So she used to say that, you know, a lot of times when we were fearing things that were kind of to your point, maybe I was making it more of a thing in my mind than it actually was. Um, so yeah, so it's kind of when it starts to interfere with, I guess the things, the productive things of life or the things that we want to do, that's a sign to us to say, okay, that's, that may not be operating in a healthy way. Right. Right. Yeah. When it's getting in the way of our values and our activities and the things we're passionate about, yeah. that's when it starts to, to be self-defeating. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. And is there, like, I, I think what I hear about, especially in, well, in life in general and work, and even with the pandemic, you know, you hear that there's a lot more just anxiety in people yeah. um, and in children, you know, in adolescents and just all of us, I think. Do you think of anxiety and fear as the same or different? Or how do you think about anxiety and fear? Yeah. So neuroscientists would, would probably tell us that there's subtle distinctions between the two, but I would say for the most part, we, we kind of use those labels interchangeably. And the reason we do that is that both fear and anxiety involve activating a part of the brain called the amygdala, which is kind of, uh, this is an oversimplification, but sort of like the emotion center of our brain, the part of our brain that's involved in generating sadness or fear or anger. And so when folks are reporting feeling anxious or afraid, we see the amygdala activation is really firing. Uh, but I would say that like in everyday usage, people tend to describe anxiety uh, more in terms of like worrying about things or stress mm -hmm. or daily hassles or my job, my marriage, you know, 
my health, all these things, like that more kind of general worry. Mm-hmm. Whereas fear tends to be talked about more in terms of these short-term kind of acute threats to especially your physical safety. So again, I see mm-hmm. a fear described more in my veterans with PTSD, whereas anxiety I might see more in someone with like something like generalized anxiety disorder. But again, there's probably not a hard distinction between the two, especially when you see that the neural activation at the brain level is essentially uh, the same. Okay. And you, you treat them both the same way too, essentially. Uh, well, I'm sure we'll get into this later, but through a combination of like exposure or restructuring your thought process, you know, mm-hmm. both of those are remedies for anxiety and fear. Okay. Okay. That's what I was wondering. I was thinking like, do you, can you use similar strategies for both? I guess they show up differently. I love the idea that fear is more, I understand that more acute, you know, the yeah. idea that like I, I have an unhealthy fear of bugs. Sure. <laughs> so when, <laughs> when I see a bug, it's acute. It's like, it's, it's a particular thing. It's at yeah. that moment, you know, when that thing is gone, the fear goes away too, yeah. you know, but the anxiety, yeah, it feels more like, I don't know, it can stay with you longer. It can be causes of, you have to kind of think about maybe even what it's about. Sometimes. You have yeah. to kind of get underneath it because to your point, it could be from lots of different things in life, I imagine. Yeah, it's a, it, you know, the the anxiety or the worry is more of a, more of a moving target or shifting target. Um, like you said, with, with fear, oftentimes people talk about in terms of specific fears, mm-hmm. heights, flying, um, you know, walking de- certain places. And it it actually tends to be, treated pretty easily because we can target that specific situation but anxiety when it's kind of all over the place Mm -hmm. uh, we know it's more difficult to treat we can still treat it but it's more difficult Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i get it because it's it's more shifting it might be more broad more general and probably takes a little bit longer to get underneath it like what is you know because sometimes you can feel anxiety and have to you have to really think about like what why am i what's going on like why am i feeling this way so i could see yeah it's a little more difficult to get underneath it maybe for people. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And I know that, you know, I'd like, I focus on work, but I know these things happen in all areas of life. Like, but what do you think are strategies for overcoming fear or anxiety? Like, what have you seen some things that either from the research or from your practice that you see work for people? Sure. Yeah. So um, what I'll say is a uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT for short um, is one of the most well-researched and effective treatments for anxiety and fear. And there's kind of two main approaches that that therapists tend to use for anxiety and fear. Um, One is something we call exposure, or sometimes it's called behavioral exposure. And basically, it involves gradually exposing yourself to the things you're afraid of or worried about, and just kind of gradually ratcheting up the intensity or the difficulty of what you're afraid of. So for example, when I used to work with folks uh, with fear of heights, right, we might start out with just going to the top of a one-story building, uh, or probably wouldn't even start there. We'd probably start much lower, right? But we might eventually work our way up to going to the top of a multi-story parking garage just over many sessions. And what happens is your body starts to acclimate to the situation and get sort of desensitized to the fear when it realizes that, oh gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing these things, but nothing, nothing bad is happening to me. Um, I, can, I can look over the top of this parking garage and lo and behold, I'm, I'm still alive or hey, look, I can talk in front of other people and I'm not embarrassing myself the way I thought I was going to. Um, so this exposure can be something very formal done with a trained CBT therapist, but it can also be something more informal you can just take on yourself. Um, so for example, my my PhD advisor, Jen Chevins, Dr. Chevins and I recently did a study showing that doing acts of kindness and volunteering can actually help with 
uh, social anxiety. It can be sort of a form of exposure for social anxiety, and it gives people something to focus on other than their own anxiety while doing something enjoyable at the same time, as opposed to doing something more structured like an exposure therapy intervention like CBT. Mm. Um, so that's that's exposure. That's one approach. The other main approach is something we call cognitive therapy. And that is basically focused on looking at our perceptions of threats that I was talking about earlier, our interpretations of threats, mm -hmm. and modifying our thought process, our self-talk to be more realistic. Mm -hmm. um, so rather than you know thinking like, if I go to the grocery store, I'm going to die or something bad's going to happen, we, we help the person start to catch that thought and replace it with a more accurate thought like, well, if I go to the grocery store, there's a chance something could happen, but it's it's unlikely. And mm. just that subtle shift, thinking a more realistic thought, really lowers the temperature on the anxiety that they might feel. So one of the techniques that uh, your listeners can look up that's very simple is something called the three C's. It stands for catch it, check it, and change it. Mm. Uh, basically involves you, you catch the thought that comes up, that pops up, that is driving that anxiety or that fear. You check the thought for accuracy, kind of acting like uh, you're a detective to see, is this a valid thought? Is this accurate? Is this realistic? Mm -hmm. And if it's distorted or skewed in some way, you change the thought to be a more accurate, balanced uh, thought or belief. And, and again, that subtle shift research has shown really helps with dealing with anxiety and fear. Hmm. Oh, I love that. And yeah. I love the acronym. Catch it, yeah. check it, change it. Yeah, I it's easy to remember. Remember that? Exactly. Makes it easy. So it's just, but it's being really aware of what, like what your thoughts are. Um, it's yeah. kind of, you have to kind of get them, have to make them conscious, like not right. just offering the back, you have to make them conscious so that you can say, okay, am I, have I, am I getting the wrong perception on this particular activity I'm about to do? Um, I love that. Catch it. Yeah. Check it. Give yourself change. some time to think about it and then change it to whatever is more realistic for yes. whatever the situation is. Yeah. Simple, easy to easy to remember, easy to use. And there's a lot of research evidence behind it. So mm, I love that one. And I, I mean, the behavioral one is also really interesting. So if I understood what you were saying, and I saw, I saw a little of this um, snippet on today's show, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I saw, mm -hmm. yeah. So, um, I, you know, just the idea that by being kind, like social anxiety and kindness, I'm just trying to make sure I understand the reason that might work is the exposure part of it. It's like I'm exposing myself to other people, but by doing it through kindness or volunteerism, it makes it easier. Or what would you, how would you describe it? Yeah. I, well, so in a lot of this is still kind of being investigated the exact yeah. mechanisms of why this yeah. works. But one of the things we found in that study is that when people are doing these acts of kindness for other people, it sort of takes the focus away from how others are perceiving them, which oh. kind of bears some similarity to that social anxiety, right? Like, mm -hmm. do people like me? Am I coming off as awkward? You know, am I being perceived as normal? And our thoughts can just run away with us. Mm -hmm. And what we found is that when people are doing these acts of kindness, that that kind of hyper focus on yourself or how people are perceiving you sort of goes down and, and you're, you're sort of absorbed in helping another person. And so um, the reduction in social anxiety might just be kind of a nice side effect of, of really immersing yourself in, in something you're you're passionate about. I mean, some people might find that more, you know, uh, easy to swallow than like doing something that's really explicitly focused on doing the thing you're afraid of. So yeah. it might be easier to tell someone, go do an act of kindness than to say, 
go give a public presentation in front of a bunch of people. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I could see that. I have, a, I have a lot of clients who really hate the, you know, because in certain organizations at work, you need to do like the networking thing. It's like, go to this meeting where it's lots of people you don't know and strike up these conversations that seem natural, but you don't think it's natural. So I could see how, you know, starting with something that's more about service and has more of a purpose behind it. And you know, you're going to help, like it could kind of take away some of that anxiety. I see what you're saying. Like, let's focus on me more focus on them and the purpose of it. And so, right. you know, a byproduct is I'm not thinking about myself as much. So I'm not as anxious. Or I'm not exactly. As about it, exactly. So. And that was kind of the thought process behind the whole, whole study and why we did it. Yeah. I love that. And I can see exposure too. I've just, you know, I find like those kind of things like public speaking, if you do it enough, it may not get like easy, but it definitely gets easier. You know, it gets easier. Yes. So this is kind of being willing to take little steps into something. I could see. Right. Like yeah. The first time you get out of your comfort zone, your anxiety is going to be through the roof. Yeah. Uh, but if you can push past that initial discomfort, it does get easier every time for most people. Yeah. And even that awareness that the first time you do it, if you are feeling fearful and, you know, or anxi anxiety or anxious, that's not uncommon. It's right. like, like, just go ahead and expect that's going to happen. Super common. Just yeah. Knowing that might help you push through it because it's, it may not, it's not saying, no, this is a barrier. You can't do it. It's just saying this is common with new things. So yeah, but absolutely. Anxiety is a universal, everyone, myself included as a clinical psychologist, you know, I still experience anxiety in new situations, but the more you do it, the easier it gets. And so, yeah, nothing's wrong with you. If you experience a ton of anxiety, um, it's, yeah. it's a, all a part of the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's important. That's important. Um, so any last thoughts on this topic of fear or overcoming fear, anything you'd recommend people think about or resources, just anything you want to say before we, because I, I want to do a lightning round with you too, but anything, sure. uh, anything you'd recommend yeah. your closing. Yeah. Talk. Well, I know you have a, um, a lot of interest in, in helping people with work. And so I would just say that all these techniques I just mentioned work for those work situations as well. Um, so the, the same thing, same principles we would use for one of my combat veterans who's gone through a combat experience can also be applied to experiences in the workplace, right? Fear of public speaking, fear of assertive in a healthy way with your boss, mm -hmm. right? Role-playing with a friend, exposure, just gradually practicing these things you're afraid of can help there too, and as well as the three C. So that's that's the main thing I want to get across is that these these techniques can be used in a variety of situations from the most intense to the least intense. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. That's, that is super helpful. And um, yeah, I mean, I just think about, you know, we spend most of our lives at work in work yeah. context. So right. the ability to apply this in work context is really important. Um, I was reading something said that the most anxiety, you know, producing thing in our life oftentimes is work. Yes. So I imagine we all have lots of opportunities to practice these strategies yes, in, our, in our work life, but peers, managers, tough situations, you know, just it, it happens at work. So you're right. I could see how you could practice these at work too, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, great. All right. Well, I'd like to do a lightning round at the end, which yeah. is to help people get to know you better and, you know, help people get other ideas on how people have figured out their purpose and their jobs and those kind of things. So just three quick questions. One of them is, um, what's one thing that helped you figure out what you wanted to do for a job or career? Like, how did you know this was something you wanted to do? Yeah, well, I think I started thinking about it as early as elementary school when I, I noticed I really enjoyed listening to people's stories and, and people would kind of come to me with their 
stories as you know whatever stories little elementary school kids have <laughs> um, yeah. and uh, so I started to think oh maybe maybe I'd enjoy something where I you know talk to people and then it really got solidified in high school and I took an AP psychology class and fell in love with psychology because it offers kind of a blend of the humanities like English and philosophy which I really love kind of think about human nature but then also I love classes like biology and whatnot and psychology offer a lot of that more kind of analytical thinking in the sciences too. And so I found psychology was kind of the perfect blend of the two. And so that's why I ended up going the uh, clinical psychology route um, to get my PhD. Okay. Oh, I love it. Started in elementary school. I, I've heard that yeah. one good question, like if you're doing something you don't enjoy, one good question to ask yourself is like, what did you want to do as a child? Yeah. Because there's a lot of seeds in childhood before we put on all the you know, things about what pays me the most and what, like, right. you on all these practical filters, right. like, there's usually something there. So I love that you kind of got the seed for this in elementary school. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it says a lot about your values when you kind of think back to what you want to do there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, love that. Okay. Yeah. Um. So second question, what is one thing you do consistently to just enjoy your life? Yeah. So um, one thing I do is I take at least one day off every week to completely disconnect from work and just rest. So uh, this was um, a practice I started in graduate school when, you know, graduate school is very intense, you know, PhD program. I'd sometimes be literally working 60, 70 hours a week in my earlier years. And so this really saved my mental health and well-being to just take one day off completely and not check emails, not work. Um, Even if I had to work extra time on Saturday so I could take off Sunday, I, I did it just spent time with my wife, hiking, biking, et cetera. And that really made all the difference. So I, I continue that to this day. Those of your listeners who follow faith traditions might recognize that as like taking a Sabbath, right? I, I grew up going to church and it's one of those things the pastor always tells you that you just ignore and you yeah. say, eh, whatever. Uh, but I really started in graduate school and it made such a difference. And so I think people of all faith traditions or none at all could really benefit from this, just taking one day to completely rest and disconnect from work. Don't check email and all that stuff. And it makes a huge difference to your life. Mm, I love to start that in grad school. I, yeah. I, I, oh, I, just thinking back on grad school, I remember having like my book bag was always with me just in case I got 20 minutes to read something. Uh-huh. There's so much to read all right. the time. I love that because I honestly, I just started doing that myself like oh, last nice. year. Like, but I just, when I'm 50 something, I just figured <laughs> that out last year. Yeah. And um, it makes a huge difference. I mean, at the end of this year, a friend of mine asked me like, how are you ending the year? And I said, rested. And she yes. was like, rested? I was like, I know I've never said it myself before either, but I think it was because of this one day a week. Like it, it is huge. So absolutely. Absolutely. Mm, that's great. I wish. Yeah. I wish I'd learned that in grad school. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was, a, it was a matter of survival for me. I was at my wits end uh, in those early years working so hard. And, and this really, it really saved my, my well-being. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Okay. And last question, what's a word of wisdom or piece of advice that you live by? Yeah. And I, I think there's so many I could say, but since this is a, a podcast today on fear, I thought I'd share a, a quote that has always helped me when I'm feeling fearful or anxious. Um, I encountered it somewhere in my undergrad days, um, uh, the the poet Ralph Waldo Emerson. Uh, he says in one of his poems that the, the world of any moment is just the merest appearance. In other mm. words, the situations that seem colossal in the moment mm. uh, often fade in their significance over time. And so even for really bad situations, human beings have this remarkable capacity to adapt to the situation, their circumstances, whatever they are. So I always just remind myself of that quote when I 
am going through something hard and my thoughts start to turn towards catastrophizing and predicting these apocalyptic scenarios, right, of mm-hmm. how bad my life's going to be. And I just remind myself that it's unlikely to be as bad as I think it is. And even if it is, I will almost certainly adjust to it, whatever it is. Um, mm-hmm. Dostoevsky, the you know, Russian author, also said something like this where he said, humans are a creature that can get accustomed to anything. Mm. And I think that's the best definition of them. And so that that's always inspired me that whatever is thrown at me, no matter how bad it is, and there are bad situations in life, we don't want to downplay that, you will adjust to it most likely. Yeah, I'd love, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, because especially in difficult moments, that's such a good reminder. You know, yes. like, you you can get through this. You can adjust to it. It's a moment. That's amazing. Okay, we're gonna, I'm gonna put that quote in the show notes. <laughs> I love both of those. So, yeah. um, Dave, thank you again so much for joining. Um, you all can find David and his research online at ResearchGate, so you can look him up and find his research there. And we'll put that contact information in the show notes as well. Um, you can always find me on Instagram at Arlene underscore Pace underscore Green. Thank you guys so much for joining, and be well. If you love this podcast, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You're also invited to join my private email group where just for joining, you will receive a checklist for getting your LinkedIn profile in top shape and a link to the first chapter of my book. Click join the crew in the show notes. I also invite you to visit my website where you can shop our t-shirt collection designed to help you fulfill your purpose, love your work, and enjoy your life. I have them all, wear one almost every episode, and know you will love them. Thanks so much for joining me on this journey. Let's go.